All right, everyone. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, at all times and in all ways, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit in this class and in worship and in everything only to do two things. To show us our need for Jesus and then to give him to us. Amen. Okay. All right. Today... We're eventually going to talk, and if you didn't if you didn't come last week or didn't hear, I definitely encourage you to go grab the podcast uh, or the you know the online audio for for what we did last week because it's pretty important. It's foundational. But even so, before we get to the 79 prayer book, which is what we're going to do today, is going to be the last day where we're come on in, guys. Today's going to be the last day where we're overviewing this stuff. And then we actually get into the prayer book, which is my intent, is that we're walking through it together, trying to make sense of it, help enliven worship for us. But before, uh, so today's that, that day we're going to be talking about the 79 prayer book, talking about a few things about choices that Advent has made with regards to the options available to us in the prayer book, etc., etc. Um, so I want to review first off the goals of this class, because they're very important. I don't want us to get into weeds. We may, but I always want us to zoom back out and see the forest for the trees. Number one, as we said last week, it's it's to help us connect head and heart. Remember that in Cranmer's preface to the first English worship service ever to be written, he said, the, the purpose of the service is that the people should continually profit more and more in the knowledge of God and be the more inflamed with love of his true religion. And that's old language for just I want this worship service to help people love Jesus more. You know, that's it. And so in this class, we want to connect our head and our heart. We don't want worship to be some intellectual or aesthetic exercise. We want it to go deeper, right? And secondly, um, we said that the goal of this class, the goal of the next seven weeks after this one is really to tune our hearts to hear, to tune our ears to hear the gospel in worship. Our goal is that we as human beings who are in need of being addressed by God on a weekly basis to expose our sin and then to give us Jesus, it's it's hopefully to help us tune our ears to hear this more and more. Last week, we briefly went over the history, right? And we, I threw down all these dates at you, none of which you, are you probably going to remember. But these are just sort of significant mile markers, right? Significant moments in the history of the prayer book, the first and second English prayer books that we refer to. Significant things happened between 49 and 52. Cranmer kind of took it along in a reformational direction. And by the way, were you not moved by today's sermon? Were you not moved? It was just powerful. Okay. It just made me, you know, love, love and appreciate what all these people went through back then. It makes me want to sort of stand up for Jesus, right? Um, 1662, after a brief stint where the Puritans were in power and uh, cut the prayer book out of English practice for a few years, it was reinstated in 1662. 1789, 1789 was when the first American prayer book, our Book of Common Prayer, was ratified, brought over from England with a few changes. In 1928, the first major American revision, and in 1979, the second revision. Many of you who maybe have grown up in the Episcopal Church and who are older may remember a time where you were worshiping with the 1928 prayer book, but I won't ask you to raise hands because we don't want that kind of exposure, right? Okay. I want to review the theology of the prayer books because this is what we got to. We walked through some passages of scripture that, that I believe drove Cranmer's thinking and the reformational thinking about what it did. And we said at the end of that, when we're talking about Hebrews and 1 John and a few other passages, that worship 
at its core involves the Word of God and a robust sense of what the Word of God means. Not merely the Scriptures, but Jesus working, Jesus as the Logos, the Word of God of John 1, working through the Scriptures. The Word of God acting to bring death to the old being and life to the new through preaching, reading the Scriptures, praying the Scriptures, and the sacraments. This is sort of the theological view of what the prayer book is there to do, what the liturgy is there to do. And so we said, well, I want to translate this into more of a, a simple statement, a statement about the heart that you and I will review every week. The heart of the prayer book is this, to unleash the Word of God, to convert your heart again through the power of the Gospel. If there's a refrain that I want you to carry with you, what's the purpose of our prayer book liturgy and worship? Why are we doing it the way we're doing it? Why are we speaking these words every week? It's so that the word of God would be unleashed to do its work on your heart through the power of the gospel to reconvert it, to expose your sin and your fraudulent self and give you Jesus, the one true law keeper, right? Uh, that's, that's the goal there. So even just briefly, what strikes you about this heart? Anybody, as you've been maybe meditating on the week, because I know it's been occupying your mind and staying on the forefront of all your thoughts, Monday through Saturday, um, unleashing the word of God to convert the heart through the power of the gospel. What hits you about that when you think about worship every week at Advent? You know, uh, maybe interesting reflections, good reflections, bad reflections. Or what do you, when you hear this and then you worship every week, what do you think? What's going on in your mind right now? Yes. So much of what is in the Book of Common Prayer, we also find word for word in the Bible and Scripture. Yeah. You find so many statements that are, when you read through them and say, wait a minute, that rings a bell, and look up the words in a concordance or something like that, you will find that that exact phrase appears right. somewhere in the Scripture. So it is, it is a gospel statement as well Definitely. as a form for worship. Yeah, the prayer book is. Some people estimate about two thirds of it are direct quotations or or close allusions to scripture. So all the words that we're using are, it's like God's gift, giving us words to pray back to him from the scriptures. It's really cool. Anything else about unleashing the word of God to convert the heart thoughts? Yeah. Holy communion. What about it? It's the center of my religious life. Yeah. Okay. Anything else about this? Thoughts? Yes. Living and active, yes. And how it's working on your heart, and not you can't change your heart, but the word of God can change your heart. That's right. Yes, yes. It's like you want to picture the word of God, uh, you know, in some sort of like Mm -hmm. photon of light. I don't know how you want to describe it, but in worship, the word of God is active and working on you, moving, moving among us. You know, it's an active thing by the power of the Spirit. I, you know, it's very, in that sense, charismatic because this isn't dead ritual. It's living because the Spirit fills it and does stuff in us and through us in the liturgy. It's very active. And I want, to, I want you to always have that picture and that idea that when you step in and when you use these words, the Word of God, Jesus, by the power of His Spirit, through the Scriptures, is acting on you, doing stuff to you, killing you and making you alive. And when we go through the liturgies, we're going to point those out in very hopefully human and ordinary and powerful ways. So before we dive into the 79 prayer book, I want to spend just a few minutes to zoom out and to talk about what worship uh, is like in the liturgical tradition in general. Uh, I spend a lot of my time in dialogue with worshipers and worship leaders outside the liturgical tradition. 
And they're, they ask me if we're having an honest conversation or an open one, like, what's the value, seriously, of being liturgical? What's the value of doing the same thing every week? My goodness, we're doing the same thing every week. And that gets pretty rote. It gets pretty repetitious. And what I want to say there is there's a point to the repetition. And the point is this. One of the values, and I say the centerpiece of it, centerpiece of, of repetition and liturgical worship in general of any tradition, hopefully, is this. It is the gospel core. And I want to describe it like this. Psalm 23, the first psalm I ever memorized as a kid. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside quiet waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I want to pause there and look at that phrase, paths of righteousness. The Hebrew there is an interesting word that could just as well be translated ruts. He leadeth me in the ruts of righteousness. You've got to think like um, roads that were so well-traveled by animals and maybe people that it eventually wore grooves into the ground, right? You've seen these if you've been on hiking trails. And the concept, I think, here is that even when you can't see the road on a stormy day, on a cloudy day, on a day when it's foggy, my feet can feel the edges of the ruts and to know where the path is precisely because I can feel them. Grooves have been worn on this path that tell me that this is the right way to go even when I can't see it. I will tell you this, the liturgy in its repetition intends to wear grooves into your soul so that on the dark night, when you cannot see, and when the storms of sin, grief, sadness, and pain come to you and you don't know which way is forward, those grooves have so worn themselves in that you just almost instinctively walk on it. Here's how it got practical for me. As a kid, I didn't grow up in a liturgical tradition. And I had this conception of my walk with Jesus, that now that I was a Christian, now that I believe the gospel, uh, I was supposed to really try hard to follow him. And anytime I failed, I had a, I was a kid with a really strong sense of conscience. Anytime I failed, I would do my own version of penance. Like if I, if I talked too much in class and got busted by the teacher, my conscience was so sensitive that I'd say, in order to show God that I'm sorry, in order to show him that I'm serious about being righteous and holy, I'm not going to talk in class for a whole week. And I did stuff like that from the mundane to the extreme as a way of sort of telling God when I sinned, I'm taking it seriously. I'm one of those real Christians. When I started going into a, a, a liturgical tradition that offered me the grooves of weekly walking through confession of sin and hearing the gospel preached to me, it started changing the way I experienced those moments where I was confronted with my own sin. It started dramatically changing it because instead of, well, seeking righteousness by works on my own, my instinct, the path I walked, was to stop and confess it to God. And then interestingly, when I would say, God, I, I confess to you that I've sinned in thought, word, and deed. When I would say those things, I would hear my pastor preach to me the gospel. I'd hear the absolution, the assurance of pardon. I'd hear in my head someone else telling me there is there, and it's the Holy Spirit, <laughs> telling me there is therefore now no condemnation. <laughs> and I will tell you, those grooves actually had the power and have the power to change me, to grow me in my life. And I will tell you that that's when we do this time and again, even if it feels like you're going through the motions and nothing's happening, 
God, the Spirit, is wearing grooves into you that will be there for you when you need them. Okay, And I'm seeing some nods because I can tell people have experienced this, the ruts of righteousness as a result of this weekly repetition. We want it to be ecstatic. We want it to be heart-filled every week, but it's probably not because we're human. And still God is using it to work, to wear those grooves into our souls. So it's the gospel. And what I'd say is there's an outflow of the gospel that's a part of, of worship that's wearing other kinds of grooves teaching us what the Christian life is is like. And theologians will sort of split the Christian life and the concept of formation in the Christian life into basically three uh, sectors, piety, ethics, and doctrine. Piety being my love and engagement with God, prayer, adoration, praise, walking with God, talking with God, communing with God, ethics being... Those things that characterize the heart of God, the law of God, the things that God loves, good things. Doctrine being the truths, the truths that we hold about God. I'll tell you that worship in various ways, in the liturgy in various ways, is intending to wear grooves of these things into us, the holistic Christian life, the fruit of the gospel. And uh, they're summarized in our liturgy and present weekly in our liturgy. Piety is summarized in nothing but the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is that model, that baseline that Jesus has given us to say, this is how, when you don't know how to connect with God, connect to God with these words, our Father who art in heaven. So Jesus gave us that. And when we pray it every week, we have something for our piety to anchor ourselves. Ethics, the Ten Commandments. The summary of the law, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as you... It's teaching us what the baseline is of God's heart for human beings in this world. How do we operate? According to the rule of love. And then let me tease those things out to you. I give you ten commandments to help you flesh those out. Doctrine. The summary of doctrines in the creeds. Uh, the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed. When we say them every week, we're being formed in the central core belief of Christianity, the way that we've distilled the scriptures. So in all these ways, the value of liturgical worship and the repetition is to drive these central core realities into the life of the believer. So I want to ask before we get into the 79 prayer book, are there any liabilities of liturgical worship? Yes, there are many major liabilities to liturgical worship. I'll tell you that liturgical worship, if you've experienced it and you love it like I do, it's very beautiful. It's almost, liturgy is almost like a piece of art in and of itself. But the reality is beauty and structure may become a way of holding God at arm's length. And it's betrayed in the way that you and I may walk out of a worship service and say, Man, wasn't that liturgy beautiful? Aren't those words exquisite? Whoa, those prayers were, were gorgeous. When the purpose of the liturgy is to actually become, I'll give you this metaphor. The liturgy is supposed to be clear glass, not stained glass. The liturgy doesn't want you looking at it, but through it. And sometimes when we get so caught up in how awesome we are to have a great liturgy and to have these beautiful words, we get stuck somewhere and we actually don't get beyond it, which is the Word of God living and active, doing a work on us. And it's a psycholo psychology, psychologist in the room, approach avoidance psychology. 
Here, we use the liturgy to co-opt avoiding the encounter with God that kills us and makes us alive because it's an incredibly uncomfortable encounter. It's not a fun thing to have God expose you. It's not a fun thing for God to tell you, this is who you really are this week. I want to remind you of your... It's not fun. (laughs) But we need that word if we're going to get to the other side where God says, and yet there is provision in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I half wonder, you know, with a, a good liturgy that has all those wonderful ingredients that we've talked about, people ask, why is it that so many in liturgical churches with this kind of liturgy remain unconverted? I will tell you that that's at least part of the reason is because the liturgy has become stained glass, not clear glass. The purpose of the liturgy is to drive you to Jesus and to see him and him only. All right? We want to worship Jesus, not the liturgy. And there's a huge difference. So that's a liability for us in our tradition. Remember that the liturgy is supposed to be clear, not stained. And so now I want to talk about the contents of the 1979 Book of Common Prayer. I'm just going to let let that uncomfortable word sink in a little bit, you know, and we're going to slide right past it, okay? But think about that with me, because I, as a pastor, actually care more about that than all the other stuff that we learn. I care more about that. If you open up your 1979 Book of Common Prayer, these are the first two pages of the Table of Contents, and already I'm a little bit overwhelmed. Because if I'm just trying to find the worship services that Advent does, I don't really know where they are. <laughs> There's so many things going on because the Book of Common Prayer is filled with uh, lots of worship services and lots of options for individual worship services. And there's so many here. So if you were to open that up, let me just highlight where we get our two principal morning worship services. One is in what's called the daily office, which is morning and evening prayer. Those things that, that uh, represent... Christians coming to God on a daily basis. Morning and evening prayer, the daily office. And the other one is down here under the Holy Eucharist. And more specifically, and we'll get to this in a second, these are the two sections that we use. The section starting on page 37, daily morning prayer, right one. And the section starting on page 323, the Holy Eucharist, right one. Okay? So... Each week, we alternate using these two liturgies, morning prayer of right one and holy communion of right one. And I want to ask the question of why we alternate. Why do we use both of them and why do we use both of them uh, in alternation? This goes back to a lot of historical baggage in the Church of England and in the Episcopal Church. But to try to sum it up uh, in a nutshell... First of all, the prayer book of 1979 does encourage us that the principal service of Sunday morning is Holy Communion. And we at Advent believe in that. We believe that Holy Communion with the preaching of the Word is are the two kind of central anchors of, of a worship service we engage in. But things got a little funky in, Eng- in the, the history of the Church of England and in the history of the Episcopal Church. Things got a little funky because of what I talked to you about last week, the history of these uprisings within the Anglican tradition of a, of a call to want to return to, uh, Roman Catholic perspectives and teaching. And in those conversations, there was a lot of talk about making communion the center of worship, making communion the pinnacle 
experience, the principal act of worship. And as a result, those conversations pressed by the people who were leaning more toward Rome, uh, as they were encouraging the Church of England to do this, the people who were from the Reformational tradition of Anglicanism not only felt but understood that as a backgrounding of the preaching of the Word of God. That in calling Holy Communion the principal pinnacle act that we were going to focus on, the way that worked in practice for many of the folks advocating this was to severely reduce, minimize, and background the preaching of the Word of God. They wanted the climactic uh, experience of the worship service to be that moment in Holy Communion, particularly the consecration of the elements. They wanted this mysterious thing to be the center of the show. And so, over the course of time, Reformational Anglicanism and evangelicals within that tradition, small e evangelicals, started identifying themselves as evangelicals by using morning prayer. Because morning prayer has much more of a preaching-centric liturgy to it than Holy Communion. And it's not that they, uh, it's not that they totally got rid of the Holy Communion liturgy, but they just started identifying themselves as evangelicals by the fact that they were engaging in their Sunday morning worship at some times with morning prayer, which is why, why you get the language of some places calling themselves, we're a morning prayer parish. That's an indicator of them saying, we believe in preaching. We believe in our reformational heritage. We are evangelicals in the, with a small e, you know, pre-20th century loaded political baggage sense of evangelicals. That's us. That's who we are. And so I want to point this out because Advent considers itself a morning prayer parish precisely because of what that identifies us with in our tradition. Um, and I want to say that again, not to diminish the power and the beauty and the importance of Holy Communion, but to say that we really believe that when communion lacks its counterpart in the preaching of the Word of God that both gives it life and preaches the Word that authenticates and gives us the Word that we receive in communion, we are missing a huge piece, an important piece. If with the Reformers we believe with Paul in Romans 10 that faith comes by principally hearing and principally hearing the preached word, which is what Paul is arguing for in Romans 10. That's an important flag in the sand. And we, as a, as a parish that cares about Holy Communion, need to, need to realize that that's why we value the preaching of the word, because it's a sensitive issue in our tradition based on some of these dynamics that are at play in who we are. And hopefully I'll, I'll definitely open up some time for questions at the end. So hang on to those questions. And let me go on a little bit further. Um, so again, morning prayer and Holy Communion. I've rehearsed those historical reasons. We've kind of talked about the, the rising of leaning toward Rome that happened and the, the response of Reformational Anglicanism and Evangelicalism. There are historical reasons why, uh, why there is a use of morning prayer and Holy Communion alternated within Episcopal churches today or within Anglican churches today. And those theological reasons being that we believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes from the preached Word of God. And then we also, as we talked about last week, do hear as the Word of God echoes in all these other things. We do hear the Word of God preached to us in the sacraments as well. But they never come 
as a means of supplanting or replacing or being so foregrounded that you can't see or hear the value of preaching. And I'll tell you, this affected architecture. It affected where the pulpit was in some Anglican churches, depending on where they leaned. You know, morning prayer evangelical parishes were desirous that the pulpit be centered. Not just to sort of be highfalutin and sort of flash their evangelical cards everywhere, but to say we value what the ministry of the word does in preparing us for the table. And our architecture was definitely built by people who leaned toward Rome in the late 1800s. Why? Because what you look at front and center is the table. (laughs) Is the table, right? Thankfully, our pulpit's nice and big, right? And it's got a lot of stuff around that make it ornate and beautiful to sort of draw our eyes to see the sort of visual power of the Word of God, right? But we've got a little tension, even in our own, even in our own visual cues. And sometimes, seeing is believing, right? And so you can see why these are confusions even at Advent, right? They're confusions because we're formed by so many different pieces of intake, right? And our architecture feeds us a certain story that actually we're not necessarily fully in agreement with, okay? Uh, So I just want to point that out. (laughs) Okay, on the differences between right one and right two, okay. Right one and right, I want to, when we look at the table of contents of the Book of Common Prayer, the principal services for Sunday that are offered are morning prayer, evening prayer, and Holy Communion. Within those, we are given two options for each of them. Right one and right two. And right just means a liturgy. It's sort of the the liturgy one and liturgy two. In every instance of right one and right two, right one has a certain set of characteristics. And right two has a certain different set of characteristics for all of these. And this is another way that churches often distinguish themselves. It's unfortunate, but this is often the first thing when you hear Episcopalians talk to one another, oh, we're a right two parish. Oh, we're a right one parish. You know, that's how we sort of, we flash our little cards out there. And there's, there are important reasons why we might flash our cards out there. I don't, I don't want the first thing I say about my church to be whether or not I worship with right one or right two. I want the first thing that I say to be about Jesus. But it just so happens that some of the issues of right one and right two have Jesus at stake a little bit, okay? So in a nutshell, the differences between right one and right two. Right one uses Elizabethan Old English. Duh, right? <laughs> As if, well, we're right one parish, so we, we, use, we use right one, so it should be obvious, like, these words don't sound like words that I would use, right? Beseech and uh, reigneth, you know? So right one uses uh, this old language. Right one retains more continuity with the 1928 revision, which is why you see people who have worshipped with the 1928 prayer book favor right one if they're if if they believe in sort of the continuity of that. It retains more of 1928, um, and in doing so, it is actually closer to Cranmer and Reformation theology. Why? Because 1928 was still, with some revisions that we have questions about, was still within the line and carried the voice and liturgy of the gospel that Cranmer set up, especially in 1552, and that remained in large part in 1662. So there's a lot more continuity in Rite 1 with the liturgies that have gone before. And I'm speaking theological continuity. There's certainly a lot of linguistic continuity as well because of the Old English and because it simply preserved a lot more of that. Right two 
if you look and start reading through those rites, it uses modern English. And not I wouldn't say colloquial. I wouldn't say street language. But it just modernizes it. So as it comes off the tongue, it might sound like something more that you and I would say in the 21st century. I will tell you, it departs significantly from previous prayer books, not only because it attempts to incorporate older liturgies, but it also attempts to do some theological and liturgical innovation because I was just reading a bunch of these people last night. The people who revised this really believe that theology was on an evolutionary course. And the theology that uh, blessed people in the 16th century was not blessing people in the 21st century, and we needed a different one. And uh, so it departs significantly from the previous prayer books, both in structure of worship and in the words of worship use. And it departs significantly from Cranmer and Reformation theology as a result. I will tell you, as I read the revisers of the 79 prayer book, the people in charge of making these revisions, they were either oblivious to the foregrounding of justification by faith alone that was so important to Cranmer in the way that he made his liturgy. They were either oblivious to it or they were full-blown enemies of that theology. They really didn't believe that that theology carried weight anymore, that it was passe, that substitutionary atonement was a medieval thing. I heard all these things being said by these people. Uh, so it departs significantly from Cranmer and Reformation theology. Um, it already sounds like I'm vilifying right to, okay? I understand that. We, we, and the reason it sounds like that is because we place such a high value in the gospel centrality of what the Reformation accomplished that there is a lot to disparage. I think there is a lot to disparage. But I don't think it's wholly bad. It, there are magnificent sections and prayers in right to that if you read them, will really bless you. And if any of you have worshipped in right to uh, with right to liturgies, you will have encountered beauty and things that draw you to the Lord. Um, and so I just want to say that before uh, zeroing in on one particular thing. That, in a nutshell, are the differences. Now, Advent is committed to right one, and I want to camp on one of the issues related to right one, knowing that it may. I don't know what it might do in this room. I want to camp on the Elizabethan English for a little bit, the old language. There's a beauty to the old language. Um, the blessing of utilizing old language is that it connects us to an older church. When we use old language, we're reminded, I'm part of the communion of saints here. And I'm worshiping with a body of people who existed long before me. You know, And so there's something very rooted, especially in a postmodern age that is so fragmented and lacks roots to be able to worship with something older than me. That's what I love about the language. That's what I love about the sense of the tradition of the liturgy is that this is old stuff. And the church has been worshiping with that. And I'm joining with all those saints in this. It lifts our spirit with elevating language. The people that took issue with the modernization of language in right to often pointed this out is that there's a reverence and a beauty and an honoring of God in this high language that befits a king, right? God, God is God, for goodness sake. He's not just our buddy. He's God. And when we talk to him, there should be a sense of due reverence and respect. And that ele elevating language helps, helps us in an aesthetic way to recognize just who we're talking to, right? And it provides us with a reverential atmosphere. I mean, just the... 
the the beauty of of its its poetics and there's just something about the English speaking world that finds Elizabethan English incredibly reverential, incredibly uh, beautiful and and just something that's aesthetically rich. It's, the language is almost like an art form unto itself. And I will say it helps. It helps us to remember that one of the ways, one of the ways that we are to approach God is in reverence, you know? So I think when there are right one parishes out there, they tend to understand and do these things really well. All right. And I think we do these things really well. I want to talk about the liabilities. Again, this can be a way to hold God at arm's length. It can be a way to see the stained glass and not see through the glass. And it's always going to be a liability for us. Why? Because we simply don't speak this way. And so it's already a barrier in its language to getting to what the objective of the liturgy is to get us to, right? We have to do a bit more work, right? I will tell you that it can because I know people and I just experienced it myself. It can hinder intimacy and a feeling of being from the heart. Because what does it mean to speak from the heart? Well, just to speak the way I would say it, you know? And if, if the liturgy is meant to draw out the hearts of the people of God to God. We need to recognize that the older language is a liability for that. And it's not an argument to say, therefore, we shouldn't do it. But I think we as a congregation need to realize that it is a liability. It's something that we need to almost actively fight to press into the words and allow them to become our words. And that's the beauty of being able to say them time and again, is that we're able to... Um, have those words that are unfamiliar and a bit foreign to us in the ways that we wouldn't speak start to grind themselves into our soul so that week after week, when we say them, perhaps there's more authenticity, there's more heart, there's more uh, vigor and all those kinds of things behind it. And just, I know some of you are skeptical about what I've just said. So I want to give you an illustration. I wake up in the morning next to my beautiful wife and this is what I say to her. Dearly beloved, with great wonder, I gaze upon my betrothed. Thine eyes, thine eyes shine like the sun. Thy lips blossom before me like roses. Oh, with what chance of divine favor am I granted such a gift, right? <laughs> if I said that, I mean, she might think, wow, that's, I mean, he worked hard on that one, right? <laughs> if I were trying to sort of demonstrate more naturally, Zach in the 21st, wow, honey, you're beautiful. Your eyes, your lips, everything about you is gorgeous. I feel pretty lucky that God would bless me with a wife like you. The first might sound chivalrous and romantic in our day and age. Uh, and though it might sound chivalrous and romantic in our day and age, wouldn't it be obvious to Abby that the latter, uh, were, that the latter were more directly from my heart? If I spoke this and then I spoke that, which would she find first blush more authentic? Right? And again, now thinking through, if God wants our heart, and he wants our hearts to say in response to God's great gospel, I love you, Lord. Sometimes this can be a liability. Okay? Do you see what I'm saying about, about this illustration? And again, I hope I've articulated the good parts about those things. I want to point out... <laughs> One historical note that is of in interest and should be of interest to us. 
We in the 21st century view thee and thine direct address as formal address, you know? We don't really use it in culture anymore, but in, in Christian circles and in worship, we use it, and we use it of God alone. I and mean, we don't turn to our neighbor and say, uh, how was thy day, right? Um, we use you and your for informal, intimate address. Get this, in the 16th century, it was reversed. Do you all recognize that? So, when Cranmer put these and thines and thous into the, into the liturgy, he was actually seeking something more intimate and from the heart. He was actually seeking something that addressed God personally and intimately. So, we've got to sort of understand linguistic evolution, the way it works, and some of the liabilities. So, old language, for all its benefits it has, is not the principal reason Advent uses right one. You hear me? Old language and the beauty and the poetics and the aesthetics of it aren't the reason that we use right one. We are not interested in tradition for tradition's sake. Our commitment is deeper and more fundamental. Why does Advent use right one? I'll give you three reasons. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel, right? Right one ties us to being able to hear the gospel a lot better than right two does. If you, if you want to go deep with me, I will send you the 50-page uh, document that I'm working on. Uh, if you want it, I'll email it to you when it's done and ready. And you can see some of the, some of the comparisons and uh, the analyses that uh, I've made to help us get that the purpose of Cranmer's liturgy, the purpose of, of the English Reformation was that the gospel would be more clear. And why? Not just because we love the gospel, because we believe in the power of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is the only thing that, going back to the goal of the liturgy, converts hearts, right? So we believe in it because of the gospel. All right. Questions or him? Questions. Yeah, yeah. The gospel in one sentence. Jesus came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Dying on a cross for our sins. Rising for us. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, and I think the gospel is at stake there. You, you were saying that uh, Dean, Lime, Dean Limehouse talked about how right one focuses more on, on calling out our sin. Yes, in right two, there's a lot of sidelining and erasure, erasing of language of us being sinners, miserable offenders, those kinds of things. And I'll tell you the gospel's at stake there. Why? Because you don't know you need the gospel until you know you're a sinner. All right? I just sounded a bit like preachy there, you know? But uh, that's the idea. It, and it's the, it's the reformational concept that the law needs to do its killing work before the gospel can do its resurrection work. And so all that language that makes us feel so bad, doesn't make us feel all that good, is purposeful. Because we don't want to admit that we're sinners. Every last one of us. Anytime anyone confronts you about something you did wrong, what is your instinct? I didn't do it. Blame. You know, deflect. Defend. You know, just, I didn't do it, right? Because the old Adam, the old Eve in us, doesn't want to hear that we're a sinner. 
And ironically, that theology is very much in play. The revisionists didn't want to hear that they were sinners. <laughs> we didn't want to hear that because theology has progressed. Humanity has progressed. Um, and we're just at a better place now. That was that, just some of the idea. Yeah. Right. And it was just so vapid. And last night I was having dinner with somebody who grew up in the church with me, and we we said, "You remember old man so and so preaching? You remember one thing he ever said that ever touched you in any remote way?" And the answer was no. He was a totally. There's a church almost free of the gospel. Right. And people would find Jesus and leave the church. You know, everybody was right. So yeah. Lots of friends, was, you know, but they didn't have anything to do with that. It's why we're committed. It's why, it's why we're committed. And what I don't want to have happen in these discussions, I'm, and you're not doing this, but what I don't want to encourage us to start feeling is like, look how awesome we are. Right one, committed, we love the gospel. Look at all those other non-gospel believing stupid people out there. I want to get past this discussion actually, so that you and I, when we walk through the liturgy, can just hear it for what it's trying to say at Advent to us and what we need, right? Uh, yes. How, do you have any tips for how to make that language feel more intimate? Yeah, us? how do how do we make that language feel more intimate to us? That's what the next seven weeks are about. Yes. That's kind of what I was going to say. Kind of like you did this morning, I noticed at the beginning of the prayer uh, of the service, you, you kind of read it, even though it is the traditional language, you read it more interpretively. I and did that on purpose. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, and I think it draws out the meaning yes. of it versus a monotone. Yes. Uh, and I think that also if you if it is read kind of an interpretive way by whoever's doing it, it kind of brings out the meaning of what those words yes. are. Yes. Yes. I'm glad you noticed that. <laughs> that was really purposeful. Uh, I mean, there's one show yeah. in every audience. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. right. Yeah, good word. last week about the administration of the Holy Communion. Yep. When you, when you give the elements. Right. Rather than just sort of drone on, it's Christ's blood was shed for thee. Yeah. Yeah. Christ died for thee. Yeah. With your heart by faith, with thanksgiving. Right. I mean, I'm going to be emphasizing in this class things that we can do better as the congregation. But I will say, there's room for improvement among your clergy to sort of help lead you in the hearty nature, to use an old English word, to use a reformation word, the hearty nature of the liturgy. Please take and can it be home because it's the summary of what we did. And if you just need some time with Jesus where you're crying before him and thanking him for his salvation, that hymn is awesome. I promise we'll sing next week. See you next week.